Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning to hear your scriptures, and would we be molded by them. Thank you for your word. Give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illumine this word to us. And as this is a psalm of some violence, even, there could be some in the room wondering how possibly could this be the word of God, divine revelation from a good God. Others might not know what to make of fire and sulfur to come in this sermon. Lord, help us, especially this Sunday, to understand one of the more difficult psalms in the Psalter and bring us into the presence of the center of the story, Jesus crucified and resurrected, who welcomes any and everyone by grace. Spirit, do a good work. Even now, we pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. There's only a handful of events, maybe a short list of events recently over the past few decades here in the West or in America to which you can attach the question, were you there when? Were you there when? Some of those events are happy, so if you're local to this area, where were you when the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series in 2008? Some of us were at the game. Some of us were at the parade, and it was a great time. Where were you when the Philadelphia Eagles football team won the Super Bowl a couple years ago? Right? And some of us, including this guy, was at the parade. We remember. Where were you when Ben Simmons hit his first ever NBA three-pointer in October of 2019 in the NBA preseason against the Long Lions Basketball Club of Guangzhou, China? VE Day. Victory in Europe. This is... I'm not sure how many people in the room are watching were alive during VE Day, but 1945, when the Allies conquered Hitler and the Third Reich, that was a very happy day. And I talked to my parents, who were just kids at that point. They remember where they were. Maybe as far as happy events, too, some of you that remember us, do we put Vietnam in that category? As I read and listen to people, 
wasn't necessarily a happy day, but the majority of Americans, we were so eager just to get out of there that finally when that last chopper flew away, there was at least some relief. And you remember when you could say, hey, there's going to be a lot of aftermath here, but finally it is over. There's also some where were you whens for tragedies. There's VE Day, but then there's also Pearl Harbor. Where were you when? And then more recently, JFK. And more recently than that, September 11th, 2001. Where were you? This is where I was. I was just starting my third year at Westminster Seminary, and just a couple weeks into classes, I had my first couple of periods that day, and I forget exactly how, but word got around. This is Westminster Seminary is on the outskirts of Philly. Word got around that there was a mandatory assembly called, which didn't happen every day. We didn't know what was going on. This was before we had cell phones, but not smartphones, and news traveled faster on TV news, cable news, than it did over the internet. But we were all gathered into the assembly, and one of the deans, a guy named Stafford Carson, announced, and many of us in the room were hearing it for the first time, we don't have a lot of details, but it seems that there was an airplane that crashed into the first and then the second of the Twin Towers. They are beginning to collapse, and this seems to be an organized attack, although we're not yet sure. We need to pray. And that's what we spent a lot of time doing. It was a somber time. That evening, while I was in seminary, I was pastoring a little church in West Philadelphia. We called an emergency prayer meeting that night. And our oldest member at the time, George, was in his mid-80s. He was at that prayer meeting that night. He lived on Spruce Street. And we deferred to our oldest member. George, give us some context. What does today feel like historically? And George said, well, there was Pearl Harbor. And then there was this. And these were the two. If that was a somber and, yes, horrible tragedy, but I hope it's not flippant to say it was a great small group, a great home meeting, just in the I don't know if I've ever been in a small group that unified, transparent, raw, emotional, and passionate about seeking God's face in the midst of what we can't understand. But then, in a matter of days after that, there began to be some fallout in 9-11 and a widening of perspectives. So, if that was the best home meeting, maybe, or small group that I've ever been to, then the following week, that would have been September 18th, I guess, was the worst home meeting that I've ever been in. And I'll put it this way. If you're a Christian, and if you've never been to a Christian small group that has ended in a knockout, drag-out fight, when there are physical threats of violence issued between people and you're cursing each other out, leaving and slamming the doors. You haven't been to a home meeting <laughs> until you've been to one of those. And it blew up during prayer request time because of this. There was one guy, single, living in one of those old big Victorian houses in University City, rented out various rooms at different times to single international students that were studying at Penn or Drexel for any number of years. A nice way to make money and build some relationships with some internationals. There's one guy who was living at my friend's house, and he was from Saudi Arabia, working in information technology systems on a large scale 
including one of his specializations was airports. And he left to go renew his visa, which he did periodically. And we, we really liked this guy, good friend, over the couple of years that he was with us. Periodically, he did have to go back to Saudi Arabia for visa purposes. He was leaving, and he did, on September 10th, 2001. So the prayer request was, hey, I don't know what to do with this. Should I report this guy to the FBI or not? Some people in the room were absolutely yes. Why is this even a question? Of course you should. We've just been attacked. Other people in the room, absolutely no. Circumstantial evidence? This is actually why a lot of people in the Arab world and the Middle East hate America, because you assume that everybody who's from that area is automatically a terrorist. The damage has been done if he was part of this attack, and if he's not and the FBI manages to track him down, you have just turned him against our country. This is racial profiling in the worst way. Shouting ensued. But even from that point forward, not just in my little church, but the church across the US, there was a widening of perspective. And in the midst of those things, there were a certain number of Christians, including some fellow seminary students of mine, that gravitated towards what are called the imprecatory psalms. And an imprecatory psalm is one, to explain it, that has a lot of imprecations, meaning a lot of smiting. If you can think about the Bible, and the imprecations are when the psalmist prays to God that God would smite, would punish enemies of the nation of Israel in various and often very graphic ways. And so there were a number of Christians that were gravitating towards these imprecatory psalms and praying them against Middle Easterners in general and Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization, specifically. Here are some examples of imprecatory psalms, including Psalm 11 that we have here. Another one, Psalm 69, speaking of enemies. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Or another psalm, speaking of a single enemy. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditors seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. And so on. People were praying these prayers that are in the Bible against specific people half a world away. Now, even at the time, I think, whether at my seminary or more broadly within Christendom here in the U.S., most of us thought, hey, we should probably slow roll that and think again. That, that doesn't feel right from a scriptural intuition perspective. Uh, hold on. God is a God of justice, but Jesus talks about loving our enemies. Let's just not rush to these things. But that whole experience highlighted for me that it's really difficult to know what to do with imprecatory psalms. Now, some of you, many of you, most of you might never have heard of the word imprecatory, but if you are a Christian here this morning, you may have had the experience of coming across some of these psalms, whether in personal Bible reading or other contexts, that are super violent against enemies, and you think, what do I do with this? I really have no idea. 
Or maybe you're somebody that's skeptical of spiritual realities, maybe in the room or watching here this morning, and you're like, aha, this is reason 186 as to why I'll never be a Christian, and nobody else should be either. What do we do with these things? So I persisted for a while simply in discomfort, but one of the members at my church, who is actually at both of those home meetings as a person of peace, changed my perspective. Her name was Anne. And for a number of decades, she was a pediatrician in south, the southwest, southwest section of Philadelphia on Island Avenue close to the airport. And Anne was somebody that had a sterling academic resume. She went to all the best colleges and med schools, got all of the fanciest degrees. She could have been anywhere with a pedi pedigree like that. But what she decided to do out of med school was open a private practice in one of the poorest sections of Philadelphia where the great majority of her clients were on Medicaid. And for a couple of decades, she was simply there serving an underserved population, never going to get rich, never going to get famous, but doing good to people that needed it. It came that she was the recipient of a malpractice suit. Nuance. Some malpractice medical suits are good. If you've been severely wronged by severe negligence from a doctor, you're going to sue, and I would encourage you to sue. But I think we would agree at the same time that sometimes those sorts of lawsuits are frivolous and shouldn't be prosecuted, and this was one of those. And crazy, like, not really Anne's fault at all sort of thing, but the situation and stakes were such that if Anne had been found guilty, it would have ruined her career. It would have shut down her practice. And so our church rallied around her, and we're praying for justice. God, this feels like an unjust thing. Have mercy on Anne, not only for her soul, not only for her profession, but for the sake of all of the thousands of little kids that she treats on an annual basis in a section of the city that doesn't really have another pediatrician. And if she's taken off the board, those kids are consigned to pedi pediatric care by ER and nothing else. The Sunday before her trial was set, Anne was at church. I talked to her afterwards. Hey, Anne, we've been praying for you a ton. How you doing? And she said, feels like a really heavy time, but I'm feeling okay. I've been spending a lot of time in the Psalms. And I said, great. And she said, in fact, here's one of the Psalms that I've been spending a lot of time in. Could you read it to me right now? and then pray for me. And I said, of course. And she gave me an open Bible to Psalm 35, which is another one of those imprecatory psalms. And I had internally this moment of like, oh, okay, this is an imprecatory psalm. What's this going to look like? But as I read through the psalm, Anne herself wasn't fists clenched, punching people in the air but she was quietly weeping, mouthing every word of what is a really long psalm. And I'd like to read some of that psalm to you right now. As much as you're able, put yourself in her shoes. Imagine your life's work potentially being undone by an unjust act in a moment, and how you might relate to a psalm that goes like this. Contend, O Lord, th th with those that contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. 
Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. That was my light bulb moment. Hey, there are certain situations in which we need psalms like this. And again, for Anne, it wasn't a vengeful, hurtful, hateful thing. But she was in trouble and found great comfort in, yes, an imprecatory psalm. Here at Liberty Collingswood, we like to wrestle with hard things, not run away from them, where the rough edges of Scripture intersect with aspects of our culture one way or another. This is one of them for the rest of the sermon. And I know that was a little bit of a long intro. It's all downhill, alpine skiing from here. Let's talk a little bit more about imprecatory psalms. But when you're in trouble, you actually need these songs. So two parts for the rest of the way. Wrestling and then growing. Wrestling and then growing. So this is a psalm of David, old King David. And the opening notes of this psalm finds David, as he does in a lot of different cases, seeking refuge in the Lord. In the Lord, beginning of verse 1, I take refuge. And then he goes through the false harbors, whether it's negative talk from around him or within him, it's as if David is saying, I feel an impulse to run in these directions for shelter, but I don't think I should. Flee like a bird to your mountain. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, I just need to flee to the mountain, then I'll be okay. And we talk a lot here at Liberty Collingswood, too. What are your false harbors, your, your idols, where you're in a lot of trouble, a lot of anxiety, a lot of distress one way or another? Things that besides God or apart from God where you say, if only I have a little bit more of X, I'll be just fine. Whether it's a little more money, a little more fun, a little less conflict, a little more margin, whatever it is. Here's the big reveal. Even if you get that for a little while, everything will not be okay. Those are the false harbors. But David, you can treat this and other psalms as self-talk, inspired self-talk, as David reminds himself and encourages the ancient Israelites to sing, Yahweh, the Lord of all things, the Lord of Israel, the Lord of the universe, is the only real shelter, real harbor that we can ever find. Five times in seven verses here, we have Yahweh, 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 the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And this is something for us to ponder. As David seeks refuge in the Lord and the Lord alone, part of the refuge that David finds here in this psalm is that he reflects upon God being a God of judgment and a God that smites, a God that gives various imprecations of various kinds. We find that here in verses 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, 
but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's what they're going to get. That's what they're going to drink. Incidentally, fire and sulfur. Anybody want to take a, take a guess and you can shout out, in older versions of the Bible, King James, RSV, instead of sulfur, what word do you find in some of those older English translations? Brimstone. So, this, if you've heard, yeah, that preacher gave a fire and brimstone sermon this Sunday, this is actually, in all of the Bible, the place where fire and brimstone as a phrase comes from. So older transla- translations, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. You, you didn't come here this morning thinking this probably, but you're, you're in a fire and brimstone sermon right now, by, by definition, because this is where we are. But what do we do? For Christians, we'll stumble over psalms like this. For skeptics, like I said, it'll drive us away from Christianity. But as we think about how do we deploy these psalms or embody them, if we think, does this mean I should just go on blast mode with all of my enemies all the time, if we're at a four-way stop and somebody skips their turn, just rain down an imprecatory psalm upon them. If I see a politician on TV that I don't like, just get out an imprecatory psalm upon him or her. Ben Simmons. And I think for most of us, again, it's like, yeah, let, we probably shouldn't go there. And the majority of Christians throughout the ages, these imprecatory psalms are not newly difficult to our modern era. There were plenty of people that wrestled before this. There is this idea, yes, we affirm the justice of God, but there's a lot of teachings of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're struck on one cheek, turn the other cheek so that you can get struck again. How many times should you forgive, Jesus says? Seventy times seven. And then there's also an awareness that evidently, These psalms in the Old Testament before Jesus came are given in a specific historic moment where God relates primarily and sometimes exclusively, give or take, the nation of Israel, theocratic Israel. And so it doesn't make complete sense that we can just easily copy and paste to our current context and our enemies. But it still leaves the question, right? If, as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What do we do with all of this stuff? Let me point you in a couple different directions. Here are some recent voices that at the same time summarize contemporary voices where there's a lot of historical antecedents and precedents for what they're saying. A couple of people that you may or may not know. John Mark Comer, a brethren pastor on the West Coast, author and teacher. This is how I've heard him talk about it. I'm not quite there myself, but I'm intrigued enough to relate it to you. He said, I've heard him in a couple different contexts say, this is how I was taught to see the imprecatory psalms. They are descriptive, not prescriptive. If the Bible was given, yes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but by human people, if you're whacked around a whole lot, you'd be angry too. And so descriptively speaking, we have captured in the psalms some of these moments of anger and vengeance that aren't necessarily intended prescriptively for us to take the same perspective, but if you find yourself in those moments and with that anger when you've been wronged, you can find some relief in these psalms. Now, for me, that that buzzes my doctrine of Scripture tower a little bit, although I'm still intrigued by it. But then also, my other issue or, I guess, question with it is, that's just not how songs work. 
when songs that are written for a lot of other people to sing, they don't stay descriptive, they become prescriptive. Speaking of 9-11, Bruce Springsteen, singer-songwriter, I forget what state he, oh, he's from New Jersey. So Bruce, after 9-11, came out with an album three quarters of a year afterwards, The Rising 2002, a great album. One of the songs on there is Empty Sky, where the protagonist, New York is not named, but it's obvious, who lost a wife, a husband, in the Twin Towers, and he or she wakes up every morning, ostensibly within view of where the Twin Towers were, to an empty sky. And there's a line at one point in the song, midway through, the protagonist says, I want a kiss from your lips, I want an eye for an eye, I woke up this morning to an empty sky. I want a kiss from the lips, from the loved one that died. I want an eye for an eye. That, that's the vengeance motif. I'm really angry. I'm sad, but I'm really angry, and I want to get even right now. Woke up this morning to an empty sky. But what started happening in concert, and this was true in October of 2002 when I saw Bruce at the arena, he would sing that song, just him on guitar. He always had a couple quiet moments where 20,000 people pin drop in the arena. But what began to happen is when he would get to that line midway through the song, when a kiss from your lips, I want an eye for an eye, people would start cheering. And soon after that, Bruce went on record both on stage and in interviews saying, I'm not okay with that. And I was writing this song descriptively to capture the grief and anger and anguish of somebody that's lost a loved one in the Twin Tower. But it freaks me out a little bit when people singing along in concert cheer after the eye for the eye line, and it's like they just want to go bomb somebody. That's not the point of the song. But even though Bruce meant it descriptively, because it's a song, people naturally started taking it prescriptively, so Bruce just dropped the song from the set list because it was too tricky. Another leading voice, N.T. Wright, an Episcopal author and priest and pastor in England, has said when we see these imprecatory psalms where God is smiting people, we need to remember that the larger category there of justice is God's restorative justice. And so, if the end of time, when Jesus comes back again to create a new heavens and new earth and every wrong will be righted and every tear wiped away, and there's going to be only peace and holing and healing and joy forever, for that to happen, God's got to deal with the bad stuff and the bad guys and the evil and the sin. So God's wiping the slate clean of evil is actually not part of a negative program, but a positive program. I agree with that. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, died recently, triangulated it this way. When we look at the imprecatory psalms, we see a strong affirmation that God is God, that God is holy, that God is righteous, and ultimately, whatever God does, and we struggle with this as modern people, but it is God's call to make. Earlier this spring, if you were here for the sermon on divine election, do you remember the Lightning Hopkins story? Lightning changes chords when lightning wants to change chords, because I'm Lightning Hopkins. It's that idea. But then also, in addition to that, understand that it's a good God against evil. And if our God was not against evil, that would mean that our God is not a good God. So it's actually good. And Keller goes on again to say, from the imprecatory psalms, we still need, and from these psalms, we need to pray for justice. We need to long for justice. We need to pray against injustice. We need to fight against injustice. Those are all good things. And pray for the kingdom to come. 
So those are some triangulations, and here's a personal two cents for me, and then we'll get to how we can grow. I was going to say don't quote me on this, but this is a sermon. So this is my workshopping theory. I, I just went on Mr. Googly over the past couple of weeks and looked up all of the imprecatory psalms. And as far as I can tell, and maybe your mileage may vary if you go and look at all the psalms too, but at least as far as a rough survey, without exception, every one of the imprecatory psalms where David or other psalmists pray that God would smite other people, they all occur in the context of the psalmist being under threat of physical bodily attack. I couldn't find one imprecatory psalm that was not given in the context of potential immediate bodily violence against the psalmist. And that's significant. That makes a difference. So if you only ever have been uncomfortable with imprecatory psalms, a little tongue-in-cheek, but congratulations that you've had such a comfortable life where you've never actually had the opportunity to be in such danger where an imprecatory psalm actually makes a lot of sense to you. Kind of like this. Cohort of Liberty Pastors a few months ago, I was leading a discussion on, hey, what do we do with Jesus, Bible, and politics? Traditionally in the church, or at least in my tradition, there hasn't been a lot of political talk in churches, but 2016 election, George Floyd murder, this is a new era where we need to keep trying to figure out how do we make sense of all of this? How much politics should there be in the pulpit on Sunday morning? One of our oldest pastors, Glenn McDowell, said in that conversation, hey, I don't have all the answers, but Glenn McDowell is very active in the Philadelphia gospel movement, bringing churches across the ethnic divisions together. He says, I'll only observe that this is actually a very majority culture white conversation, where in the black church, for generations and centuries, by contrast, there's no question about whether politics should be integrated with the Bible or Scripture. It just is, and the question is how, because we're oppressed a lot. And so just observe that we have the luxury of debating and discerning whether we should get our feet wet and all of this stuff in the first place. So similarly, if you are at risk, especially bodily or deeply, imprecatory psalms make intuitive sense, don't they? Like my friend Anne, who, by the way, was vindicated, won her case. I wanted, made a mental note. Be sure to come back and say that Anne actually was okay. But for her, there was great help and great healing in such a psalm. How do we grow? Four quick things as we're on the last bend on the Alpine Skiway. God sees, God frees, God challenges, God graces. God sees. Understand that as we access imprecatory psalms, evil will face a reckoning. Evil does not go unnoticed by a holy God, and that includes evil and violence against you. The saddest conversations I have, or at least among them as a pastor, is when people tell me about abuse, violence that they've received, either way in the past or more recently. And this isn't because I'm brilliant. This is pastoral meeting one-on-one. You never want to forget to say at one point in that conversation, hey, I'm really sorry about what happened. What happened to you was really wrong. What happened to you was evil done against you. And I just want you to hear that I see, and more importantly, God sees what happened here. 
And almost to a person, that's an occasion for tears. Including, incidentally, when I've had that conversation not with people at my church, but with skeptical friends and neighbors who, on a piece of paper, an abstract conceptual conversation would probably tell me, you know, Jim, I'm a late modern person. I don't believe in right and wrong. And if you want to say that, like, oh, if, if you're going to impose, like, value judgments on other people, I'm very not okay with that. And I think you're just, you know, hopelessly traditional in some of your categories. Uh, never have I told a secular friend, neighbor, family member, hey, what was done to you is really wrong and I'm really sorry. Never at that point has somebody come back and said, Jim, I reject your categories as traditional and oppressive right now. Instead, it's like, thank you. This was evil. This was really wrong. But that also mean that evil is, it means evil is not going to win. Which I think, whether skeptics or followers of Jesus, I think we want evil not to win unless you're a really bad guy or bad gal, you know, most of us. Um, how do we get there? Do we just hope that things will get better? which I think is the late modern aspiration. I don't have a lot of hope in that. We're in a good and righteous God. God sees and God frees. If you understand these psalms and precatory well, you get this really big view of God, beginning of verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Or the beginning of verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And actually, all this past week, for every devotional time I had, I prayed, meditated upon, journaled upon the beginning of verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. What are the implications? How can I live into that? One of them is that God is God. God is God. And as part of God actually being God, that means God is judge, corollary, you're not, and I'm not. And when you affirm that God is judge, that's actually freeing for you as a follower of Jesus and a human being. And call me crazy, but if you're here as a skeptic this morning, maybe you can take steps of faith towards Jesus from an imprecatory psalm. The Holy Spirit can do that. You are freed if you allow God to be the judge from being the one that makes retribution yourself, and you're freed to love. You're freed to forgive. God's the ultimate arbiter. God's going to judge this. I'm freed myself from being judge, jury, and executioner. I don't have to do that. I'll leave that to God. I'm just going to love you. Or to a seeker or a skeptic one more time, how else do you truly love your enemies? How do you do that, practically speaking, if there's no God who's an ultimate judge? How do you re-extend forgiveness and love to somebody that's wronged you if that wrong itself is never adjudicated by anybody? Instead, you're left in this squishy gray area where re-extending love kind of also carries with it, well, what you did to me was not that bad, I guess, so that we can at least establish relationship. There's a completely different geometry that the gospel gives us to re-establish relationship again. So God frees, God sees, and then also God challenges there is a testing aspect to this psalm, verses 4 and 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Sometimes we might think, God, why aren't you acting sooner? I don't get why nothing's happening right now. This is really wrong. Well, this isn't the answer, but one of the threads is that God does care, including about our character. God tests us. 
Isn't it the case that when the going gets tough and evil is done against us, it's so easy to just reach out and fight fire with fire? If you've done wrong to me, I'm going to do wrong to you. That's all there is to it. But God is after deeper character in us. Don't fight fire with fire. Act wisely, lovingly, truthfully back. Don't just punch as you've been struck. Be a man. Be a woman where you don't have to resort to just fighting back. Instead, let this trial refine your character and become more godly. And this is where we'll wrap up. God graces. You get grace even from imprecatory psalms. The very end. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Christian church has confessed whether Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament in general, whether the Psalter in general, whether imprecatory psalms in particular, there's a sense in which they are incomplete apart from the center of the story fulfilled in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. You don't get the full story if all you have is the imprecatory psalms without Jesus of Nazareth. Because the reality is, this is a psalm of David. David himself was not able to fulfill the own rubric of verse 7. The Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. This is the same psalmist, King David, who in Psalm 51 says, I've messed up big. Again, this is after his sin with Bathsheba, his assault upon Bathsheba. Against you, you only have I sinned. Surely I was sinful at birth from the time that my mother conceived me. So if David's only hope is that he'll be upright enough to see the face of God, David himself is cooked. But a greater David has come. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Before Jesus came to earth, he was with the Father for all time and came from heaven, bringing the temple, bringing the tabernacle of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that the space of the Lord and humankind coming together again is now joined through the person and the work of the Son of God. And this is the Jesus who died and rose again, paying the penalty for all of our sin. One other thing Tim Keller and others have said, You've got to understand with the imprecatory psalms, with all of this judgment and wrath for sin, the center of the story is that all of that judgment and wrath for sin is satisfied in the sun. The fire and sulfur and brimstone in the cup of verse 6 against evil and sin was imbibed to the dregs by Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. There, justice and mercy meet for all time. So that it's by, if you come to Jesus in faith, not yours, not David's, not anybody's, but Jesus' righteousness, that you shall behold the face of God in peace eternally, because if you have seen Jesus by faith, you have seen the Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. 
You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.